Yes, this is the first episode of Your Financial Mentor News. I'm so excited to produce this show and get it out to you guys. My name is David Boyer, and the only thing you should be wondering right now is, who is this guy and why should I listen? Well, as I said, my name's David Boyer. I'm one of the youngest members to become a fellow at the Institute of Chartered Accountants. A couple of weeks ago, I did a TEDx talk in Melbourne talking about why people should listen to accountants and not ignore us at your family barbecues. I run another podcast called From the Trenches with my good friend Paul Meisner, and we talk about the accounting industry, which is pretty boring to most people. And amongst other things, I run a business. Sequel, Your Financial Mentor, brings experienced finance professionals and puts them into small, medium businesses just like yours. The reason I'm starting this show is because I think that commentary on small business news is pretty subpar. Every time I read uh, a smart company or every time I read any other journal, really, they kind of miss the point of small business, which is that sometimes our numbers aren't always right. And sometimes what we say isn't really what we mean because the PR is so important to us. I think the analysis could be a bit better. And so what I'm doing is picking up four stories every week that I love, interviewing some amazing people, and also talking to people who have actually helped businesses grow so we can get some real life facts on the ground. Today, I've got an amazing interview with Patrick Lee, the founder of Rotten Tomatoes, the movie aggregation site and rating site. I got to meet him at Startup Grind, sponsored by MYOB and the amazing trendy MyOB offices over in Cremorne. And later on, we'll be talking to a financial mentor, Kathy Hodgson, about how she's helped a really fast-growing business keep up with their growth. But first, the news. Ariana Huffington versus Elon Musk. It's the battle you never thought coming, you never thought you wanted, but now it's here and there's a ton of lessons we can learn from it. Ariana posted an open letter on her amazing blog called Thrive Global, which you absolutely should check out because it is all about work-life balance, mental health as a business owner, a topic I'm very passionate about and we'll talk about in later episodes. Elon Musk hit back because he's Elon Musk and can kind of do whatever he wants. But Ariana puts in an open letter that she recently read he was working 120 hours a week and it was at the expense of spending time with family and friends. Ariana's new business, Thrive Global, is dedicated to letting us become educated on getting more sleep and the importance that that is in our lives. She suggests that there's studies that have found that only if you don't, if you work 17 to 18 hours a day, you actually start to become worse at your job. I've had my own personal experience with this. I was working on a M&A deal for a kind of a small business. It was a, a, a private family business, a retail business, and I was working 18 hour days. I literally got burnout. There was no possible way I could do the job. Ariana's done this, I imagine, to bring a lot of attention to the cause of making sure that we manage our sleep. Musk fights back with a very short, sharp tweet. He says, Ford and Tesla are the only two American car companies to avoid bankruptcy. I just got home from the factory. You think this is an option. It is not. Well, here's my take. It is an option. Part of the reason Musk has to work 120 hours a week is because he's not just running a car business. He's running five businesses, Tesla, SpaceX, Neuralink, OpenAI, and The Boring Co. There's a great post on QZ.com that talks about how he spreads his week across the five different companies. There's a lesson for this. As entrepreneurs and as business owners, we always want what's next. It's kind of never enough. We see something shiny. We want to throw our resources and our talent and our enthusiasm behind it. And only one thing happens. We spread ourselves thin. Now, I'm not going to tell Elon Musk how to run his life, but I know how I run my business. And I know when I take on too many projects, 
one project tends to suffer because I just can't be attentive as I need to be. And that's the thing. And, you, you know, you guys are hopefully getting to learn a little bit about me as this show goes on. I started my own business four years ago, coming out of uh, practice land as a tax accountant. And then I was a business banker for a little bit. That was a lot of fun. I'm quite happy not to be a banker at the moment with the Royal Commission going on some of the startling news coming out of that. But starting my own business was completely different. I had to manage cash flow really closely. I had to work out what clients wanted and what service levels I needed to get them in order to make money, which is kind of the point of going into business. Spreading yourself thin is a very dangerous item. And I kind of don't really accept that this isn't an option for Elon. Yeah, maybe he shouldn't be trying to go to Mars, but maybe that's good for humanity as well, and that's his bigger purpose. Mars versus Huffington, check out the links on our website to read more about this. Check out Thrive Global on how you can get better at managing your mental health, or in particular, check out headsup.org.au. It's run by Beyond Blue, and it's heaps of tips and resources to help promote mental health and well-being in Australian workplaces. Next in the news, Shoes of Prey is praying for help. The company stopped taking orders online and the in a post on Instagram, the founder has said that they struggled to get mass market adoption. Birds of Prey recently raised a huge amount of money and has always had some really premium investors, but they're kind of victim of what has to happen in startups. I'm pretty critical of startups versus just running a small profitable business. And when I say small business, could be turning over $20, $30 million and still be considered small depending on which definition you look at. Shoes of Prey, when you go out and raise this money, you end up investing in big sales teams, in big development costs, and in big fulfillment centers. And if you don't get the volume that you're expecting, well, you can't afford to pay these costs. But I think this is fascinating because this all would have been budgeted and this all would have been planned out. But you've got to ask the question in every business, why am I trying to get big? Shoes of Prey, I don't know what the motivation was, but obviously they wanted to make a major difference in the way women buy shoes. And you talk to people who shopped from Birds of Prey, they've got raving fans. They've done a great job at servicing their clients, but obviously not doing a good enough job at getting enough cash in that they need to run their business or to satisfy their investors. What I found fascinating about this story is that the news actually broke on Instagram. And I kind of really like this because it shows how close the brand and the founder is to their customers. It's a, you can clearly see this is a customer-led organization. Jody Ann Fox on Instagram uh, put the post up saying that they've stopped taking orders. And why this was so amazing is almost a 1,000 likes on Instagram but all of her customers are saying, thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you for the journey. Whatever the outcome is, you're brave. You're a smart businesswoman. I'm reading quotes on my screen right now. So much potential. You've had the rug pulled from underneath you. I'm not so sure about that. You don't really know what goes on behind closed scenes or in boardrooms. Can only imagine how hard it is to close this chapter, but you're such an inspiration. I love that this business owner has gone to their customers and delivered bad news on a platform that's generally you know, designed for social media uh, and not through some corporate company email. You can tell this person cares passionately about her business. Jodie Fox, uh, definitely one of the icons of tech innovation in Australia. I hope things come good for Birds of Prey because we need good success stories. Uh, but at the moment, things aren't looking too peachy down at Birds of Prey. Next up in the news, ASX Darling Afterpay is booming. They have announced results and they are, quite frankly, killing it. The product is essentially modern-day lay-by for millennials. You get to go into a shop and through a little piece of technology, uh, you get to buy now and pay later. Again, the stocks are booming. And Afterpay is a bit of an interesting one for me. It's fantastic uh, innovation by the founders who have really kind of used 
uh, well, exploited opportunities within the way our laws work for the rules around issuing of credit, but also found a real niche that people want instant satisfaction and instant gratification. As a finance guy, I think this is kind of terrible. You're borrowing money to buy something that's worthless the second you buy it. I mean, people are buying fast fashion with this stuff. They're buying gadgets. You can get it in hundreds of retailers across the country and thousands of online stores. There's this new concept that's being bandied about uh, at ASIC called corporate uh, a social responsibility uh, or an opportunity, a license, to, a social license to operate. I think this is a, a fascinating topic because Afterpay receives almost a quarter of all their revenue from late fees. Now, who are they getting late fees from? Well, you only need an ID and a debit card that can charge the first repayment on whatever you buy to get this loan from Afterpay. I've got concerns that in a country where a sixth of the population are struggling to pay credit card debts, this is teaching purchasing behaviour and financial management that curates a culture of spending more than what we have. Given that we've got general financial literacy, I'd love to see Afterpay doing more to explain to people the true impact of getting into this cycle of buying now, paying later. There's a reason why you see all these big promotions that are out there because companies make money off it and it's bad for people. ASIC has a great website called moneysmart.gov.au. It got a funding boost in the last federal budget. When you go on the site, it talks about buy now, pay later services. The next link is how to manage impulse purchasing decisions. So Afterpay is clearly taking advantage of our need for satisfaction. It's a great success story and it's doing really well on the ASX, but there's definitely a bit of a dark side to this. It's the people who they're making money off that we need to be careful about. And finally, Facebook has issued a trustworthiness score. Fake news is a scourge. So many of us get our news from social media. In fact, in America, 55% of all people get their news from their social media platforms and Facebook is the main platform for that. So if you're reading news that isn't accurate, isn't well-researched and lacks integrity, you're being informed by misinformation. Misinformation, very hard to make good decisions. The trustworthiness score helps people, uh, It's a ba- you're not going to necessarily see your score, but it's going to help Facebook assess accounts to make sure that what they're publishing is true and accurate. Hopefully it puts better information into Facebook and hopefully it ends up in a better debate. That's the news for this week. Let's head over and listen to Patrick Lee. I'm here with Patrick Lee. You're a serial entrepreneur, but you're most famous for being one of the founders of the movie rating website, Rotten Tomatoes. It's the site that I always go to to get some intel. I mainly watch comedies, though, and critics are harsh on comedies. It's a very particular thing. Mate, welcome to the first episode of Your Financial Mentor News. Thanks for having me, David. You're a fascinating guy and you're very tough to research. I don't know if you know this because every time I searched anything about you on Google, I'd put the words Rotten Tomatoes and then I'd just get a Rotten Tomatoes search of a movie with that search term. So it was quite challenging. But um, you've got a very entrepreneurial story. You've, You've started six startups. But going way back in your business journey when you were kind of struggling to get through college because of all the businesses you were starting, your first business was a... Uh, computer hardware business and your your second one, a digital agency. I'm curious for your thoughts on startup versus just a small business, which so many of us run, because I think a lot of us associate that with just having that get up and drive to start a small business. And now startups kind of viewed as a big tech. It's almost sexy. Yeah. So when we started our first company, we weren't thinking about startup. We were just like, hey, let's do a company together. 
And even with our digital agency at the time, we were doing hardware, and we're like, well, it seems like the web is getting big. This is in the late 90s. Maybe we should be focusing around that. And the easiest thing at that point in time, we were like 22, 23, something that age, uh, is to actually start building websites for other people because we could make money right away. Both of those companies were things that we could generate revenue immediately with near zero cost. Um, so it just made sense for us at that time. Uh, eventually, we switched over. I switched over to start doing more traditional like tech startups. But in the beginning, it was just trying to learn the ropes of what is it like to even just do a business. You mentioned that you, what was attractive about those businesses was getting to revenue quickly. Um, you watch t uh, shows, you watch a lot of t uh, TV shows and you sort of around the startup press and, you know, the cynic says don't get to revenue because then you butcher your valuation. Revenue gives you cash flow though. And when you work with these startups, do you, do you get involved in talking about how the strategy that you run with can't just be about burning the cash you got in your last round as quickly as possible? Right. So, again, the first couple of companies I did we were more like a traditional business, more like a lifestyle type of business. Yeah. And we weren't raising money for that. We got a, we, the first company I did, I just, we all put in our own money, a couple thousand dollars. The second company got a loan from my mom and my co-founder's uncle. And we paid that loan back over the next year. But with startups, yeah, there's four focus around valuation, burning cash, you're raising money, but you're not having revenue for a very long time. Uh, so you're burning cash. And a lot of it's focused on like, how do we keep our burn rate reasonable relative to the cash we have in the bank versus how much growth we're seeing? And trying to find that right balance of putting enough in for growth and figuring out product market fit um, and having enough runway to get to that point so that you can raise more money and continue growing from there. And it's it's a tricky balance that a lot of people have trouble with. I've listened to some of your past interviews and you sort of just say, yes, yeah, so I just went out and raised some money and we got a million dollars. Was it that easy? At the time we raised, it was right before the big, uh, the dot-com bubble burst. This was in uh, late, like 99. And so it was a relatively good environment to raise before the bubble burst. Also, we raised from our clients. So people we actually did work for as our design agency. And so they already knew what we were capable of. And so that made it a lot easier. It was all based on our existing connections. Existing connections and a bit of, bit of trust that you'd built by having some success already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. We, we built sites for them. We did their branding for them. They knew what kind of work we could do. And when we actually came to them and said, look, we have this site and it seems to be getting a lot of interest from Hollywood, like Roger Ebert's using it, Pixar's using it, maybe there's something there. They were all like, yeah, we're in. Great. Well, leveraging those big brands definitely helps. You and I are sitting in the, the pretty amazing new MIB, MyUp offices in Cremorne down in Melbourne. We're here for a Startup Grind event. Is Startup Grind, why is Startup Grind so important for the startup ecosystem? So this is my first event for Startup Grind here, but I've been to a number in the Bay Area and they've done a really good job of getting these, all these cities around the world to have these events and have speakers, you know, local speakers or, or guests from outside of town to come in and talk and get the startup community together. I think what's really important about something like Startup Grind is it actually gets people who are interested in tech startups together. There's people who are like, I'm out of school, I want to get into it, 
people who are like, I'm in corporate, but I'm interested in tech startups and, and folks who are already in tech startups. They meet each other. That's how you end up finding more talent. That's how you end up finding a potential co-founder. It's very important or, or a business partner um, to get out and, and network and meet each other. And something events like Startup Grind do that. One of the things, and I'll, I'll, I'll somehow try to segue this well, okay? <laughs> One of the things that Rotten Tomatoes seem to have done really well is it created a community of movie buffs. And you're now, and, and the way you answered that last question was the importance of having people around you who can help, which is a community. What does the word community mean to you in a business sense? In a business sense, I think uh, networking and community is a super value in terms of you need to try to like, a lot of times you learn things the hard way. You make mistakes and fail. And when you have a community, they can help support you. If you've already failed, if you're on your having trouble, you can get advice from them. You can get support from them. When you are trying to generate revenue, you have a new feature, you can go to the community and try to sell it to them or get their feedback. Having that like feedback loop with a community of other you know, founders and startup people or investors is incredibly valuable. Like to do everything without feedback is very, very difficult. You're here in Australia because you're visiting a friend's business or a business that you're involved in that does mobile gaming. You've spoken publicly about your desire to work in Asia quite a lot. Here in Australia, we, we talk about the APAC region uh, and like to think that we're a part of it, even though we are a bit removed <laughs> geographically, but often economically, we, we do share a lot with each other. Being here, having spent time in Hong Kong, I think you were based in, and then obviously in the Bay Area and in the States, does, is, is innovation different in different parts of the world or attitudes to innovation? I can't speak much for Australia, but Hong Kong, yes, definitely. And China was a little bit more similar to the US actually, but Hong Kong was a lot more conservative. What you'll see is because in most other countries, they don't see companies coming out of nowhere like a Google or a Facebook, right? In the Bay Area, you see that all the time. Like everyone in the Bay Area probably knows at least some friend that did an amazing startup or joined a, a startup that became huge. And so it's very normal for them to, to see that. They're less conservative as a result of that. They're more open to taking risks and, and getting equity and being interested in having equity. Hong Kong, from what I heard from a lot of startups, they don't even give equity to their employees nor do the employees even want it. I don't know about Australia. But even when we were trying to have hire good engineers in Hong Kong, you know, their parents were giving them pressure to go work at a bank instead. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because of it, it does affect innovation if you can't get the talent. And if the talent is not motivated by equity and would rather have like a conservative, safe corporate job, then it definitely makes things harder to grow. In uh, the companies that you've worked with, we were talking briefly before about the chief financial officers and you had a really interesting way uh, to describe them. We call them financial mentors. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, so when we were doing our design firm, we at first we just had you know an intern from college coming in and helping us with the books and then we would give it to an accountant to kind of run. And we realized like, hey, we're getting pretty large. We need to do a better job of this. And, and so we started we found an agency to try to help find a CFO for us. And they brought in a couple of people. I remember one candidate when we told him about our design firm and also told him about Rotten Tomatoes, and this is before Rotten Tomatoes got big at all. He just heard it and he just got up and walked out. 
like in mid-interview, and we're like, wow, that was weird. Uh, I think he just definitely wasn't someone who wanted to be a part of any kind of startup. Um, but then we had... Well, Cam's not known for taking really big risks. Yeah, That's not our that personality types. Yeah, that makes sense. But then we had this one person, Lily Chi, who came in and, yeah, we just got along with her really well. She had two sons that were basically our age. And so we brought her in and she was kind of like our company mom. Like she would, she definitely had, she was willing to take a risk with us, but she was, came from a very conservative background. And so she was able to kind of bridge that gap for us where we could be a startup. And she went through that period where the market crashed after we raised and everything like that. But she was able to give a lot of her experience that we never would have thought of and just lots of little ways to kind of conserve our cash. And, you know, when we raise money to be able to put it into things so that that money could still even make more money. Um, and we never would have done any of those things. Uh, compound interest still baffles a lot of people, but it's a very easy way to make money. Mm-hmm. Startup Grind is a, a global community of entre- entrepreneurs. It's, it's hundreds of countries all around the world. Tonight we're at a, a Startup Grind event at MYB at Myob, but the major uh, global event is actually coming to Australia. It's the first time it's ever left the Northern Hemisphere. So Melbourne is now, uh, in my world, on the map for innovation. This is going to be the one thing, but it's really exciting. There's going to be thousands of entrepreneurs there. One of the things that I was reading about it, which I find fascinating, is the pricing for it. It's it's uh, $301.70 um, at early bird or $403.65. In your experience in pricing products, what do you think of those really unusual prices? It's very strange. My guess is maybe it's just a different fee that they, I mean, a different price that they added a fee on and kind of bundled it together. But yeah, normally you would see something like three ninety nine, ninety five, or whatever, and that is probably something that people would be more comfortable with. <laughs> you wouldn't really put it up to four hundred three in that situation. You'd probably prefer to make it three ninety nine. Well, it's got us talking about it. It's going to be a great event uh, in Melbourne on the sixth and seventh of December. We've got a, a great event tonight here at MYOB. Thank you very much for your time and coming on your Financial Mentor News. Thank you. Patrick Lee interview was absolutely fascinating for me. This is a quiet, demure guy. If you search for him online, you actually get videos about how to network as an introvert. He's not the sort of guy you'd expect to be on the speaking circuit or starting amazing companies that have changed the way a lot of people experience entertainment. I uh, really enjoyed interviewing him. I loved his story of the role that the CFO played and it was as if it was the company mum. I thought it was really uh, cute and I think it's amazing that people think of finance people like that. I really want to thank MYOB and Startup Grind for making Patrick available to me and available to you, the listeners. I'm not going to harp on too much about it. We're going to get into the final part on the show. Kathy Hodgson is a financial mentor. She's uh, part of SQL, your financial mentor, and she's had an amazing week working with a really fast-growing client who's struggling to budget because their business is getting bigger and things are changing. Now, this sounds like a really boring topic. I promise you it's not. This is the difference between achieving goals and not achieving goals. I'll leave you in the safe hands of Kathy.
This is the segment of the show called Mentored. And what we do is we actually bring in some financial mentors and we ask them about the problems that they solved for their clients during the week. Because I think the best way to get to know the benefits of financial mentoring or to understand what's happening in your business is to hear from things that have actually happened rather than just having me sitting here telling everybody how good this type of service is. So joining us on the show this week is Kathy Hodgson. Kathy, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, David. Now, tell us about, you had a fantastic situation this week. You've got a really fast-growing client in the consulting space, and they've come to you for a whole range of things, basically to help them manage the growth. Yes, it's um, interesting watching um, the, or looking at the journey this client has gone through. So they started where the founder um, just had a small group of people with her, and you could um, you can see quite clearly how she managed the business without too many systems, too many processes, without too much governance. And now that the business has grown significantly, she's really got to change the way that she manages this business. So this has led her to uh, carve out the organisation into business units and start bringing in some accountability for those business units. It's so easy to read about you need to come up, carve out business units, but that's actually quite a difficult thing to do when the founder's just there with a core team growing from scratch. What are some of the ways you can go about actually working out what your business units are? And I mean, in accounting world, you call them revenue centres and cost centres, don't you? But that's a bit geeky. So how, how would an actual founder go about doing this? Um, well, I think this particular founder has done a fantastic job of actually looking at the service offering and the market segments. So she's been very specific about separating her business out into service those particular customer segments. So it's, it's basically customer-led is how they've done it. So it's not by geography, it's not by a salesperson, it's by the customer and the customer type. Yes, and um, it, that's just really important given her plans. So she's got a very um, aggressive growth plan and there's no way that you could achieve that without really targeting your customer segments and having a good understanding of what those segments are going to deliver to you. Your job is in part to predict the future from a financial point of view as best as possible. No one can predict the future. We're not Steven Spielberg producing Back to the Future movies anymore. I would have liked to have been on the set for those sort of things. Um, knowing that your client has this customer focus, how does that change the way you budget and forecast for them? Um, with the budgeting process, at initially, the budget was done just with a view of, uh, we believe that the market is moving in this particular way, this is the growth, this is the industry, these are certain market factors that might affect us positively or negatively, and that's how the budget was first put together. But in terms of predicting the future, we're really talking about forecasting, and to be able to achieve accurate forecasting, you've got to look at all the different areas of your business and the impact that both the revenue opportunity um, could deliver to you as well as your capacity and your resources. So in breaking down the business, we've really looked at capacity in each of those areas to service those customer segments and, and that should create a logical forecast. You and I were chatting over a beer and a wine last night, actually. We, we were at the Startup Grind event at MYOB's headquarters and you were talking about how you almost need to ask them to stop calling you because you keep, you keep getting calls. What are the, some of the questions you get asked by, by a business like this or a founder like this? Um, so in this particular instance, um, there is uh, recruitment requirements. So advice on recruitment and what a role might look like. 
um, introductions to certain people that could potentially help them in their business journey, um, looking at funding requirements. There's all sorts of things that come up with a client outside of the core services that we offer. And that's just in a week with this one particular <laughs> client. Um, just go back to budgeting for a bit. In a, in a situation like that, and I think that customer-focused budgeting is pretty new. So many businesses don't do it. So many businesses just look at last year, add 3% growth, add 4% growth or whatever it is, and just assume everything is going to follow through from that. What's different when you're doing, just let's focus on the revenue side of the forecast. Mm. How's that different when you're being led by what's happening in your customers? I, I actually think, um, I know we, we talked about focusing on revenue, but when I refer back to this particular client, one of the issues they have is capacity to meet the, the revenue. Um, and this is where I do, I do believe strongly in using a combination of top-down and bottom-up budgeting. Um, in this instance, at a high level, a revenue assumption is X based on what's happening in this particular market and the growth that this business has seen so far to date. But in reality, have they got the capacity, the resources to meet that revenue that they're budgeting, saying that it is possible? And so the, the bottom-up budget build is actually the exercise of going through and breaking down for each business unit what is their capacity, what are their resources, and is it logical that they can achieve the revenue target that they are setting themselves? The combination of all of that together should make sense from a um, top-level perspective. That, that's the, I mean, that's the stuff you and I love doing. That's the CFO work work. But the real value is then having the conversation with the client about uh, what, what that means. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but I've had some situations where the bottom up going from what they're capable of doing compared to what they want is completely different. That's a tough conversation to have. It is. And it actually does lead into, I mean, for me, the whole purpose of doing a budget is to actually use it as a management tool. It's not to just be done once and then put in a drawer to never be seen again. It is for the purpose of using it on a monthly basis to manage the various parts of your business. So by doing the bottom up and checking the logic to the top down, you actually all get on the same page in terms of, is this plan even possible? And if it is, and everybody signs up to it, then it becomes a really useful tool to check against each month to see how you're tracking against budget. And that's where organisational discipline comes in to actually make sure you're doing that and you find the time. I mean, it's so easy to say, actually, you know what, I've got to have this customer meeting, I'm not going to sit with the finance team. Because so many people think the finance team is just the back office. For me, that's the whole mentoring piece. That's our real value add. So actually working with a head of a business unit, going through their operational and financial performance together because the two are intertwined, um, that, that's where you can really help a, um, a leader in a business unit understand their performance and whether they're on track to achieve their goals. And the conversation becomes a lot more interesting when you've got that plan laid out and you've also got some operational metrics to bring into the conversation. This is the first episode of Your Financial Mentor News as a podcast. We've been doing it on videos for a few times. So listeners will never have heard of you, but what's your story? How did you get to this stage where, because I can hear the passion that you have for, for mentoring these sort of businesses. Um, so my, my story, I've had 20 odd years 
in um, senior finance roles or head of finance roles for larger organisations. And so I'm used to managing finance teams and working with a leadership team or an executive team um, to assist in commercially managing a larger organisation. So that's, that's the work that I'm used to doing. But um, the reason for really being passionate about this is we, we work mainly with small businesses and I feel that small businesses can't actually tap into these services that easily. And so, you know, this is a fantastic opportunity to actually provide a service that they couldn't otherwise get. Cathy, thanks for coming on Your Financial Mentor News. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week's Your Financial Mentor News. It's episode one. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and choosing to spend some of your valuable time hearing about the business news and hearing about some of the great interviews we've got going on. We're going to try to put these episodes out every week. So follow us on iTunes, share us with your friends. And if you've got an idea for a story, you've got someone you want to interview, get in touch because I love meeting new business owners. I'm very passionate about helping businesses and communities and bringing the role that accountants do and what financial mentors do and putting them into businesses to get better results. Have a great week.